Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is part two of what does the Bible say about power and politics. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. And I want to get right into the Word. We're, we're doing a second sermon on uh, uh, politics, uh, what the Bible says about power in politics. And last Sunday, I tried to make the case that power in politics is not a necessary evil, but that God has actually ordained uh, uh, that there, there be a, uh, roles of power. Power is not evil. It can be. We, we can be evil in how we handle power. But God has ordained to organize us in a way that's for our optimum benefit, that gets things organized, gets things done. In most cases, in most cases, puts the most competent people in the best positions. Not always, but better than any other system uh, that, that we can imagine. And so uh, when, when Satan comes, he always tries to create chaos and always tries to destroy uh, uh, structures and always tries to destroy what's going on. As he did in the Garden of Eden, he still continues today. So we tried to make that point last week that authority is good and that, that, that all of us should be in some area of our life carrying authority in a godly way. And so today I want to take another step and just talk about our response to uh, these tumultuous times and our response to these difficult times that we're in. Uh, we're in a time of uh, unique social turmoil right now, would you say? With the, with the uh, election being contested, with n- new uh, coronavirus uh, uh, restrictions being put on us, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a pretty interesting time. I'm going to read this statement here from a well-known female Bible teacher. It doesn't necessarily represent, it doesn't represent me in any way. I'm not trying to do that. In fact, if you're looking for a church that is going to be really political and always preach about politics and kind of create a partisan political group, uh, this is not the church for you because we're not trying to do that. Um, if you're looking for a church that's always going to be every week preaching on the, the most current events, that's not what we do. This is unusual that we do this because, because God has given us a direction that we want to help you in your life and your faith in Christ and your eternal soul to know Jesus is the most important thing that we can possibly do here. And we want to stay on mission with that and help us disciple one another. It's okay to, it's okay to have political opinions. It's, it's okay to take a political side. It's very okay to do that. Sometimes you will feel, and I will feel, that one side is more right than another in a situation. That's very okay. But it's not the purpose of preaching. It's not the purpose of of standing before a congregation with the Word of God every week. And we don't mind having conversations privately and all that. We'll talk anything, you know, and you can talk to others here. It's fine. It's not a, politics is not a forbidden subject around here, but it's just not the purpose of the pulpit. We're in a time of unique social trauma. And so I want to read the statement by this known Bible teacher that you may relate to on one side or the other, whichever side you're on. One side of my family is utterly convinced the election has been stolen. 
We are listening to different news sources, and when we try to talk, it is as if we're not even talking about the same country. We stare blankly at one another. I'm deeply troubled about it. President Kennedy seems to have captured the fear that we, some of us have today in a previous time of crisis. Listen to what President Kennedy said all those years ago. I speak today in an hour of national peril and not national opportunity. Before my term is ended, we shall have to test anew whether a nation organized and governed such as ours can endure. The outcome is by no means certain. The tide of events has been running out and time has not been our friend. President John F. Kennedy. The late John Walvard, who was president of Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, a, a fine uh, theologian and I would say an intellectual uh, said this, uh, he's uh, gone on to be with the Lord now, but he said this a number of years ago. I think he wrote this probably in the mid-90s. And I, I believe if you listen to what he said, it kind of has prophetic um, overtones. Those living within the United States of America have an unusual platform from which to view the uh, uh, economic situation of the entire world. Prosperity has swept America to a degree never before realized, and its average citizen has more money, more pleasure, more luxuries than ever before. But the United States is, in an island, is an island in a world of desperate economic need. Millions of the masses of the world who are oppressed and deprived of any fair share of economic wealth are clamoring to be heard. <clears throat> in many nations, there is no middle class, but only the extreme rich and the extremely poor. The tensions raised by such situations cannot forever lie dormant. The word revolution will undoubtedly be prominent in the days ahead. As oppressed people are exploited by communists as well as ambitious politicians and encouraged to rebel with empty promises of improvement in their situation. So, what are the rules of engagement and what should we do with our faith during these times? You know, um, I'm, getting a lot of, uh, I'm getting a lot of scary videos sent to me. I just got one this morning. I got one this morning, one of those that said, watch this quickly before it's taken down. <laughs> you get any of those videos? Watch this quickly before it's taken down. We're, all kinds of scary stuff's being, being sent around the internet um, that by March we'll have uh, containment camps and everybody that refuses to um, uh, shelter in place will be put in a containment camp. Um, that um, uh, the World Economic Forum is planning on a great global reset. That means uh, there will be no more property ownership and um, um, everyone will receive a living income which will be evenly distributed around the world. And it doesn't help that Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, looks and sounds like a villain from a James Bond movie. And so that doesn't help the situation at all. People are very, very frightened. I, I uh, you know, um, I, I, even, uh, I, saw, uh, I even saw a headline that said, um, Canada is ordering hydraulic guillotines. <laughs> and and uh, someone believes they're going to reenact the French Revolution. Uh, I, did, I did look that one up, and I, I said, I got to look that up. That's, that seems far out. And I did find that it's true, but they're paper cutters. So, <laughs> I thought, believe me, with modern technology, uh, 
if there is, if there is um, imposed a global order, it, they won't use guillotines, I promise you. But they have better technology than that. Uh, so people are very, very worried. Now, I don't know what is true and what is not true. I'll be honest with you. But I do know that the human soul cannot bear this level of anxiety and this level of fear. And I know that fear is a killer. And I know that it's the opposite of faith. And the Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So I know that God does not want his people to live in fear. I know he wants us to live in faith. It is not naive to believe and know that governments can be oppressive and that the power of government and the power of the state can crush people. It's happened all over the world. So we know that is true. But how should we live politically and Christianly? How? Well, the thing that stood out to me in the text I'm going to read in a minute will be written and you need to understand that it's in this context that God chose to birth Christianity in a time when the citizens and especially the Christian had no political clout no political power and no political voice I find it very interesting that God in his sovereignty would choose to plant the church in a time when we would, when the when Christians would have the least a bit, a amount of influence, in fact, they were the considered the outcast of the earth. Our Savior, our Jesus, was crucified. He died a slave's death. Let that sink in. What can we learn from those? who toiled under a regime that used the boot and the sword, not political campaigns. You know, today, today, today when, 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 when you see them spend, I don't know how many billions of dollars were spent on this election or still being spent, but it's, you could feed the whole world with what's being spent on our election these days. And, and you should actually be grateful for that, actually, because uh, Rome had a much, uh, a much more uh, economically efficient way to be in power. They would just line the road with people on crosses, and that was a very inexpensive way to get everyone to yield to their will. So, so be thankful that they're spending money instead of lives to this point, right? I want us to look at a great prayer before we look at a scripture. I want us to look at a great prayer prayed by a, a great theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr who pastored, started a little church in Detroit in 1917 of 70 people. It grew to seven or 800. Eventually he was a professor at Union Theological Seminary. And this prayer, you, you know it already, but he actually spoke it for the first time at the Congregational Church in Heath, Massachusetts. I bet you didn't even know there was a Heath, Massachusetts. I didn't until I researched this. It's actually out by Greenfield. Spoke, it's at a church, and it's something that, a prayer that you know. But I want to use it as a 
foundation for what I believe God would say to his people and how we should respond to the world that we live in as it is now. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. The wisdom to know the difference. Now listen, let's, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may lead peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has been witnessed to at the proper time. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So what does Paul tell us? Remember, he's writing in this oppressive political environment. And he's giving us some direction. And the first direction that I see that Paul is giving me is in my life, as I look at the political landscape and I look at the world around me, and I have a chance to, whatever way, exercise my voice in the public square, he said, focus first, I'm going to say it this way, this is my way of saying it, focus first on people before ideas, political philosophies or ideologies. Now, I'm not against philosophies and political philosophies and ideologies, I'm not against it. But Paul's Priority was people. I've urged then, first of all, this is what he says. I urge, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So what Paul is saying to me is your foundational obligation is before you think of people politically, think of them as humans. Humans who need the help of the Almighty. That's what Paul, he said, my first thought when I think of my, my first priority in life is, first of all, people. And, and, and my priority for those people is to pray for them, to invade the impossible for them in the arena of prayer. My, my first priority is to invade the impossible in the arena of prayer and to pray for them because they need divine help. They need the help of the Almighty. He's saying to us that our first action toward people is to pray that they will experience a God who can save them from a failing planet. You know the planet's failing, by the way. All scientists agree that the universe is winding down. All scientists agree that the universe is not infinite. It is finite. And it has an end date. And so Paul is saying, I care about people and I care about them in light of eternity. Our first emotion toward everyone, including our political leaders, should be love. When uh, President Trump was elected four years ago, I was being kind of a goofball up here. And I said, to, I was just goofing around. I was talking about how much God is blessing us. And I said, you know, we're, we're winning so much, I get tired of winning. Of course, I was goofing on... Uh, how President Trump talks, and man, my, my text messages went off that afternoon, <laughs> and I didn't know I wasn't supposed to say that, you know, and a lady was in my office the next day telling me, Pastor, you cannot legitimize this president, 
And I said, well, sorry, I, I, God has already legitimized him. I'm going to pray for him like I did President Obama. I prayed for President Obama. I'm going to pray for President Trump. And I've done it. I've prayed for him every day since he was elected. And I will pray for whoever occupies the White House after January the 20th. I will pray for them as well. Because they are not just an they're not just an object. They're a person who's going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. That's theologically what you believe if you're a Christ follower. You believe that. And so, first of all, they are not an object. They are a person. And everybody around you is to assume a natural byproduct of, of, of having political injustice objectives is that people tend to become avatars for their cause. And you either see them as a path to, 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 uh, for your will, your will to be done or, or a, 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 a block. Or you see them as a, uh, a, an impediment to your will being done. But Paul didn't look at it that way. And we're going to see that in a moment. Paul never forgot that whoever stood before him was an image bearer. And his first priority was, I want to convince you that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> it's really awesome that we have, a, we, we have a senator who represents us here who is a believer. I, I communicate occasionally with, very occasionally with him, but more occasionally with his uh, his uh, assistant, and he's also a believer. goes to goes to Medway Community Church, and so that's awesome that we have that, right? So, so I, I just said that Paul saw people as his first. He saw people first as people who would spend eternity with God or not, and he proves this if you go to Acts chapter. 26, but if, if you go to Acts chapter 26, uh, uh, you see a culmination of a dialogue that began in Acts 22. In Acts 22, make a long story short, Paul gets arrested. He's in Jerusalem. He's hanging out there. He's being a good Jew, and he goes down to the temple, and he engages in purification rites, and I don't know exactly what that meant or what they were, but he engages with a bunch of other Jewish colleagues in a purification rite, and they shave their head, and they do this seven-day purification ritual. At the end of the seven days, someone spots him and said, Oh, Paul, you're the guy. There's Paul. There's the guy that's been speaking against us. And he's been speaking against the law, and he's been speaking against this place. And that got everybody riled up, and they started a big riot. And to make a long story short, the Romans came in and arrested Paul. And there was a guy named King... Uh, 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 I mean, uh, uh, there was a governor named Felix. Governor Felix was over the area, and he, so he, he throws Paul in jail. Paul languishes in jail for two years without a charge and without a trial. And then uh, 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 Felix, uh, I don't know if he quit or what happened, but the Governor Festus takes over. Governor Festus takes over. They, Paul has been moved down to Caesarea down the road where Governor Felix was hanging out. And King Agrippa, who was over a larger area, shows up to congratulate his pal Festus for being governor. And he says, you know, that's so why they call Paul in, and Agrippa says, "I'd like to." King Agrippa says, "I'd like to talk to Paul too," and so they bring him in. Now, 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 get this, get this. Paul has been unfairly charged, or unfairly put, unfairly jailed, incarcerated for two years, 
And he's now, not only is he getting to see the, 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 the local uh, leader, he's getting to see uh, uh, someone with larger authority in the Roman system. Now, what would you talk about? Somebody said get, about getting out of jail. That's what I'd be, I'd be talking about. This is an injustice. I'm a Roman citizen. That's, Paul was a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. I want to get out of jail. But Paul is a Christian. He's made Jesus Lord of his life. Jesus is everything to him. He's put his whole life on the line for Jesus. He starts telling his personal faith story. He starts giving his testimony. And finally, we pick up the narrative in verse 24 of Acts 26. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul. Paul is preaching, man. He's anointed. He's going. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only but all you are listening to me today may become what I am, except these chains. That's powerful. Everybody in this room probably has something in your life that feels like chains. You have something in your life. You, you, might, you probably even have something that you feel your authorities and your government is posing on you right now that feels like chains. Is your greatest passion, though, Jesus? Or to get rid of your chains. Is your greatest passion to make Jesus known? Or to reform the government? Nothing wrong with wanting to reform the government, by the way. That is often the calling of God's people. Remember Reinhold Niebuhr that I talked about a while ago? Reinhold Niebuhr, or Niebuhr? Reinhold Niebuhr, that pastor who wrote the Serenity Prayer, he was built that church in Detroit. He used to preach against the Ku Klux Klan because there were 20 thousand members of Ku Klux Klan in Detroit in the year in, in 1920 in that area of time he he would preach against them he would also warn against governments that were overstepping their bounds he was uh, not afraid to to speak out he was a man who spoke out but yet he wrote the serenity prayer because he knew we have to as believers know what to do when we can't do anything we have to know what to do we have to know how to behave, how to act, where to go with our emotions when we feel oppressed and we feel unfairly treated. And the Bible gives us a place to go. And that place that we go is the throne room of God. Amen. Hallelujah. That's where we go. Now here's the second thing I want to mention to you today. Except that the world around you is both a mission field and a battlefield. If you go to Acts chapter 5, verse 27, I won't read it all to you, but they'll throw it up there. You can see it, that they were ordered not to preach the apostles. And they made this statement. They said, we ought to obey God rather than man. You see, here's an interesting thing. Apostle Paul prayed for the Roman emperor, but Apostle Paul did not unify 
with the emperor's godless agenda. The emperor had a godless agenda. He did not, he did not um, unify with the agenda of Rome. But he still prayed for him. And, and he, he also didn't drool at the opportunity for a photo op. Every one of us is called to resist the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age that denies the sovereignty of God. We are called to resist the spirit of the age that denies the sovereignty of the word of God. The finality of, uh, uh, the finality of God and, and, the, uh, and the finality of the word of God. We are called to resist Leonard Ravenhill, that preacher of yesteryear, used to say they shouldn't call us Protestants anymore because we don't protest anything. They should just call us non-Catholics. Every one of us is called to resist the spirit of the age. In fact, if you read, go back to our text in your mind, okay? And it may appear that Paul is just saying these pious religious words that have no political... Um, import, no political meaning. But that would be wrong. You're not reading carefully enough. He said there's only one mediator between God and man. That was a political statement because Rome believed Caesar was also a deity. So those were fighting words to say there's only one mediator between God and man because they believed, they believed in emperor worship and they believed that, 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 that the emperor was also a liaison between God and man. And Paul's saying, no, there's only one God in man. He is saying the state is not all-powerful, but God is all-powerful. He is lifting up God above the state when he makes that statement. And, and then if you, go to the, if you go to the end of the text that we read, he said, I am appointed to tell the truth I'm I am a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. That was also, Paul was taking a, a jab at Rome, and he was taking a jab at Jerusalem. <laughs> he, he was saying something that had political implications to Rome and political implications to the Jewish authorities. They didn't, that's what got him in trouble. You, you're going to take the gospel? You're, you're going to include the Gentiles in the gospel? But notice, Paul kept his protest. It, was, it wasn't about his own uh, comfort and, and, and preferences. It was about the authority of God. That's where he drew the line. That's where the early apostles drew the line. When the state wants to step over that line and tell me that I cannot preach the gospel, I cannot worship God, I will wear a mask. That's not state oppression. But if they tell me we cannot worship God, we cannot preach the gospel. If they start telling me I cannot teach my children about the ways of God, and when they go across that boundary, in fact, you should speak up. If you send your kids to, to a school and they start to teach your children things that totally disagree with, with your values and the word of God, your voice should be heard. That is 
That, that, that is not about you trying to have the American dream. That is about you having a theological, biblical, godly vision for you and your life. And nothing, nothing, you will go to jail and, and, and be executed if you have to in order to protect the, the sovereignty of God in your life because God will rescue you and God will take care of you. And that's what the early apostles believed. So, you know, how, how do you, what are, what are the pivotal questions about political and social engagement? I, I, think, I think there's three basic questions that I would throw out to you. First of all, what is your access to power and those in power? If you, don't, if you have no access to people in power, then... Your place to go is prayer. That's where you go, is prayer. And don't, don't, uh, don't minimize that. Social media, that's um, debatable. Because for one thing, social media creates these algorithms that basically, you, by the, uh, after you own there for a while, you're basically talking to everyone who agrees with you anyway. So, so, so don't overestimate the power of a social media post. For change, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, by the way, because everybody should. If, if everybody, if that's what we're going to do in our culture today, we're going to all go on social media and make our voices heard. Let your voice be heard. Just think about think about what you're doing, though, and think about am I am I replacing a political? Am I replacing a gospel saturated agenda with a purely political agenda? Just be careful. That's all I say. Secondly, what are my actual opportunities to change society? For the sake of human flourishing. I got a really small example. And it's not a big deal. I'm not trying to make, uh, make it more than it is. And I certainly. And I tell this illustration right now. I certainly want to make sure you understand. I am lifting up the local authorities. Down at the Milford Regional Hospital. So because so, uh, they're, they're great people down there. And I really love my interaction with Elaine Willie. Uh, the uh, patient care coordinator, and uh, from everything I know about CEO Kelly, uh, Ed Kelly, he's a great guy. But the other day, I found out that, I, that, that they, they were limiting people to one visit a day in the hospital. But it, and, and for good reason. They're trying to protect themselves from uh, COVID in, uh, in, in invasion, you know, all of that, and, and managing that. But uh, for a person of faith who wants a visit from their clergy or their, their pastor, that's a problem. Because if, if a family member visits, the pastor can't visit. So the, I was having trouble visiting people because of it. So I, I, I get in touch with S Senator Fatman's office. and talk, oh, you know, I, I actually texted the guy that I know there and said, Hey, can you help me out here? Because uh, well, I was encountering it with other hospitals in Boston, too. And uh, he, he emailed me the state mandate. See, see, the first thing to do, the first thing to do when you want to protest something is find out if the law is already on your side. And a lot of times, a lot of times the law is already on your side. We have a pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, set of laws in the United States of America. We, we, have a, we have an outstanding constitution in the United States of America. You compare it to the rest of the world, we have an outstanding document called the Constitution of the United States. 
And so, and so I found out, I found out that, that the regulations the state had given were, were in agreement with what I was saying. And one, one line in there said that non-essential workers are allowed to come into the hospital. Well, I thought, well, I kind of feel insulted that I'm not essential, but at least I'm non-essential. <laughs> that meant like salesman and repairman. So at least, at least, at least I have, should have the clout of the plumber. You know, and, and the <laughs> so so I I I got in touch with Elaine and uh, down at the hospital, and I emailed her what I saw and underlined it, and she she said, "Well, I'll get back to you." And they had a they had a meeting with the executives, and a few days later, I guess a normal meeting. They didn't they didn't call a special meeting for me, but <laughs> they should, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, she she calls me up, says Ed Kelly says he apologizes and. We're changing it. We're going to let all the staff know that the pastor can come. Uh, am I a great social justice warrior or not? <laughs> what does the serenity prayer say? Change the things that I can. I found out I could change something. What do you, you should be out there changing stuff that will help people that will serve humanity and make the world better. Sometimes you have to resist the world's agenda, right? Sometimes your child's education, influence, that's a no compromise zone to me, my kids' education. The right to preach our gospel and practice our faith, that's a no compromise zone. Going along with lying and stealing and corruption, that's, that, that, that's a no compromise zone. Yeah, I'm praying. I'm praying for this, this whole legal battle that's starting. I guess tomorrow when I hear it's going to go to another level. Of, I'm praying that, that what is true will, will be, be manifest. That's all I'm praying. God, what is true will be manifest. Every one of you should be praying that way. God, let his truth, what, what, uh, what, let what is truth, let the light of truth shine on the whole election process. Because I don't want to see our country go down a path where, where, elections, are not, where, where elections are fraudulent. That's a bad direction for our, our country, and we, and, and we want to pray against that. Joseph, I thought about this as I was thinking about serving in positions of little control. Because I, I tried to go to that extreme, because we still have a voice in America. I can still text an aide to the senator. And, 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 and get things moving. I, I was texting and calling, and in fact, Senator Fatman himself call, called, us, uh, called us in a staff meeting one day, and we had to put him on speakerphone, and we talked about reopening the churches. And we, we gave him our, our reasons why we felt churches should be allowed to reopen. This was back in April. And he was very, very responsive to that. So, but, so I went to, the, to, to preach the sermon. I went to the other extreme. Uh, people had no voice. And one guy that had no voice was Joseph. Remember him in the Bible? Joseph gets sold into slavery and then gets put unjustly put into prison. And you know what he did? He became a bitter, angry, uh, difficult, recalcitrant, rebellious, tried to start a revolution in the prison. No. He stayed close to God. He stayed committed to God. He served his fellow prisoners 
he gained favor in the prison. Every human being has a platform and an access to make somebody else's life a little bit better. And that's where you start. That's where political reform starts. It starts with you making somebody that you know and that you have access and power making their life a little bit better and, get, and living in a state of peace of mind. And who knows, who knows how God might promote you like he did Joseph from the prison to the palace. Who knows if you become a person who practices what you preach. See, what you preach is, I want, I, want, I, want to, I want to live in a democracy. What is a democracy? A democracy is a place where people's voices get heard. Well, whose voice have you amplified lately? Whose voice have you made sure you heard lately? You say, I want to live in a country where there's freedom. Well, who have you given freedom to lately? Well, I, I, really, I really care about people prospering and being cared for. I want to live in a country where people will, well, who have you cared for lately? Who, who did you call this past week to see how they were doing? Who do you know that has, maybe they're home with coronavirus and, and they'd like to, for you to drop off some Taco Bell to them? Who knows? What have you done? There's a lot more to be said on this subject. And we haven't tried to be exhaustive. Sometimes, though, God calls us to reform culture. But he always calls us to live reformed lives. Even in an unreformed culture. Amen? I said, God sometimes calls us to reform culture, but he always calls us to live unreformed. He always calls us to live reformed lives in an unreformed culture. God always calls us to thrive because he is enough. I said, he is enough. That's what he proved with Joseph. That's what he proved in the early church. He proved to them that he was enough. And God has called us to thrive because he is enough. And this community, I don't even have time to preach about this community called the church. That grew up in the face of an oppressive government. That flourished and thrived and grew 3,000 people got saved the first day because they preached the gospel. 3,000 people got saved. And the growth of the church was phenomenal under oppressive government that one of the leaders said, you can read it in the book of Acts, that one of the leaders said when the apostles came to town, these are the men who turned the world upside down. Would you like to be a part of that kind of fraternity and that kind of group that even in the face of whatever we're dealing with, and I don't think we even know what we're dealing with yet. We don't even know the full extent of where our government is right now. Things are a bit confusing and a bit murky and a bit dark right now. But whatever it is, Jesus made a promise. And the promise was in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what you're a part of. Let's start acting like it. Amen? In my final appeal today, I want you to ask yourself this question. If every person in the world, if 
I had a platform to invite every person in the world to become a Christ follower right now. And they all agreed. Everybody on the planet. All the billions of people on the planet. Every single one of them became a Christ follower like that. They all agreed to follow Christ. That if they, if they did lie, they would ask forgiveness and they'd be humble about it. So, so lying would stop. Deception would stop all around the planet. Abuse of other human beings would stop. Human trafficking would stop. There wouldn't be another murder committed. There'd, they wouldn't go that far, I don't believe. Graft, greed, corruption, it stops because everybody's following Christ. Wars, any wars or conflicts would stop because everybody's following Christ. Our planet would be healed in two weeks. Our planet would be transformed in a month. Economically, politically, peace would rule. Why? Because the gospel works. And it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that transforms the human soul. It's the only thing that remakes really remakes the world and remakes cultures. It's the only thing that works. So, I don't have that platform. And even if I did, everybody would not agree to become a Christ follower. But if it's such a great idea, though, and one that you all agree would work, what are you waiting on? Why don't you go ahead and follow Jesus with me and believe that someday... The promise will be true. If it works that good, it's going to work, right? If it works that good, it's going to work. And the promise of the end of the book of Revelations will come to pass. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ.